Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to this episode, which features Lindsay Shoup. Lindsay is a lifelong athlete turned coach, author, and speaker. She's an Olympic gold medalist, a three-time world champion, and a National Rowing Hall of Fame inductee. With a focus on performance optimization and longevity throughout sport and life, Lindsay coaches and hosts clinics and workshops for coaches, athletes, and teams of all ages and skill levels. She is a speaker for events at major universities and corporations, presents on various topics across the spectrum of her expertise as an elite athlete, coach, exercise physiologist, and author, and as a commentator for U.S. Rowing. Lindsay lives in Florida, where she seeks to motivate and mentor to improve the lives of others by sharing her journey of self-discovery from ultimate defeat to Olympic gold. Lindsay, I've been looking forward to having you on the show. I am so glad to have you with me on this episode. I am excited to be here. This is really, really a, a fantastic opportunity. Excellent. And I have to acknowledge off the bat your Beijing 2008 Olympic gold teammate, Erin Kafaro, who was recently featured on this podcast. I'm grateful she put us in touch. And I just want to encourage listeners to go and listen to that conversation if they haven't already. So my first question for you, Lindsay, is related to your book, which I just finished reading, and it's called Better Great Than Never, and it is a very detailed account of your athletic life. I highly recommend it. So let's start with your early life growing up in Virginia. Can you describe to our listeners which sports you played growing up? I mean, if you can think of it name it. I probably did it, honestly. Um, and I always tell people that I realized that sports happened in my life because they were kind of part-time babysitters. So it was whatever was available to my family. And so I started riding horses when I was four. So I rode horses for all growing up. I grew up in the country. So, but I started swimming when I was very young as well. I played basketball for many, many years. I played baseball. I was the only girl on an all boys baseball team at one point in time. Um, I did ballet, you know, if you consider ballet a sport, we, my brother and I, we did tennis camps, um, did gymnastics. What else? Volleyball was one of my absolute favorite sports. I played soccer, field hockey. You know, that's why I say you name it, you pick a sport, name it. I probably did it. And, um, you know, I've even played a little bit of golf in there too. So, but you know, this, my Olympic sport was actually not something that I did until much later, you know, so that was not a sport that I did when I was a kid. I'm going to ask you more about that, but I wanted to know why are you so drawn to sport and particularly team sports? Growing up being the only girl, having an older brother, you know, I followed in the footsteps of a lot of the people that were ahead of me. My brother and I are very close in age. And so it was kind of, he was always kind of forced to play with me. So whatever he and his friends were doing, I kind of did. And so we did have this kind of little cohort of kids that bumped around in the country and played in the backyard together. And I imagine that 
being a part of that kind of imprinted upon me from a young age of like having this group of people that you're kind of exploring being outside and exercise and the the idea of physical activity and kind of the way that those things made you feel. You know, I remember when I was in second grade and I wrote about this in the book, like even just messing around with a football in the uh, the playground at school with all the other kids in my grade was just this activity that we were doing and we were making up the rules. So it was almost like we were building our own community, you know, and kind of creating something together. And I think that is something that sport really elicited in me from a young age was that idea of being a part of something and building something and creating something and experimenting and enjoying that whole process. We've had a few exchanges prior to this recording, talking about being part of something bigger than yourself, which I do want to talk more about as you obviously are committed to coaching other people and helping them become the best version of themselves. But before that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also felt like from the book, I learned that sport helped you overcome insecurities. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I, um, it was my place where I felt like I had something to give, you know, I, I wasn't so awkward there. And then of course, being tall, being the lanky girl in the era when I grew up, they didn't make, you know, girls shoes in my size. I wore a, I had wore a size five shoe in second grade, you know, like <laughs> one of my friends now fully grown wears a size five shoe. So <laughs> she's 40, <laughs> she wears a size five, <laughs> but, but you know, the short sleeve, your shirt sleeves are always too short. Your pants are always too short. And so a piece of it was like, you're awkward, but in sport, everybody's wearing a uniform, you know, and, and it was okay for a uniform to be baggy because you're just, it's what's comfortable and allows you to move and allows you to perform. And, you know, I started kindergarten when I was four. So being kind of a little bit bigger kind of bumped me up from an early age, which helped in many ways, but also kind of allowed people to kind of make assumptions about me. Like, why aren't you more mature than you are? I'm like, I'm four years old. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And, and so the same thing kind of happened in sports where being a little taller was actually a good thing and helpful in sports. So for all the ways that it made me feel awkward outside of athletics, it helped within athletics. And so that was where, you know, it gave you those little, like when people are patting you on the back and telling you, you are good at something, it made you feel comfortable for all the other times that you felt a little bit less comfortable. It's not lost on me that you then took that experience and continued, you use the word giving to give. I want to discuss your journey into rowing, which starts at the university of Virginia in your third year there. I have to stress that. What was your plan going into college and how did you end up picking up the sport at 20 years old? Mm -hmm. My plan was to figure things out as I went. Honestly, all I knew going into college was that I wanted to enjoy what I did. You know, that was evident to me throughout my whole life was whatever it is that I want to do. I know that I want to be happy. And the things that I enjoyed were things like art and languages and sports and, you know, and. And apart from being a professional athlete, whatever, you know, that's the very tiny little niche of the population that gets to do that, you know, and it was, okay, I'm going to give up sports because I didn't think I was good enough to play a sport in college. So I left that part of me behind. I literally, no matter how many sports I played, I didn't think I was, I didn't gain enough confidence to think that that was an option for me through college. That's why I gave those up. So then the next plan was, okay, what are the uh, the subjects in school that I really, really enjoy, I'm going to pursue those. But it never really dawned on me that 
I had to do anything other than get the degree. There was no like, oh, what am I going to do with this after college? Okay, so then what? It was just, what do I do right now that I'm just signing up for classes? So then friends of my parents started asking me like, oh, you want to be a Spanish major and you're taking art classes. Are you going to be a teacher? And that was basically the only thing that people ever suggested, that there was no other option for people that majored in a language. What else would you do? And so that started to make me go, oh, I, I have no idea. So I just would kind of nod and be like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll be a teacher. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but but again, sport was not a piece of it until you know third year, which very kind of serendipitously entered my life. So take classes. That was about as far as I had gotten. <laughs> you speak about this in the book very vividly about knowing that things weren't working and that you needed to pivot and mm -hmm. that sport in particular rowing could be the thing to help you change that trajectory. So yeah. do you mind discussing that? Yeah. I, I know that having grown up playing all these sports and having been pretty socially connected and having gotten good grades and stayed pretty fit and enjoyed being outside all the time. When I gave up sports, I gained about 30 pounds. My grades tanked. I was less social and started withdrawing from my friends and staying up all night and eating crappy food and doing all the things that, you know, they say that college kids do, you know? And, and so the night before, and this is a weird twist of fate, you know, that's, I, I use the word serendipitous a lot because that's really how it happened where the night before I bumped into my college rowing coach, who is for me, one of the greatest mentors of my whole life. You know, I spoke to him earlier today and, um, I woke up in the middle. I, well, like I, I say I woke up in the middle of the night, but I, I had trouble falling asleep. I just couldn't fall asleep because I had all these thoughts running through my head. And I literally woke up and said, you know, I wish I had done this and that. I wish a thing or two were different. I wish I were not a lazy bum. Then I might have actually been something the world will never know. And that includes me. Lo and behold, the next day I bumped into the rowing coach and he said, you know, hey, you should try rowing. You know, in a nutshell, that's the very condensed version of how I met him. <laughs> There's so much more, even outside of what the book tells, in terms of right. uh, our background. You know, but I was at a, at what was for me a very different and low point, where I knew that it was not the person that I wanted to be. It, I was not doing the things that I wanted to be doing, and this opportunity was presented to me, and the timing was right. And I was like, yes, anything is better than what I'm doing. You know, mm -hmm. and so I went for it. And you started rowing at the age of 20. Mm -hmm. And six years later, managed to win a gold medal in the women's mm -hmm. eight rowing competition of the 2008 Olympic Games. So I have to say, I love a good underdog story. And <laughs> like an unlikely thing that a, a novice would ascend so quickly. But true to the sport of rowing, you became proficient by being consistent. Mm -hmm. So what were some of your early goals and how did you approach your training? And in particular, I'm, I'm wondering from the perspective of your attitude and your mindset. Mm -hmm. I, when I entered the situation, I didn't expect to be the best right away. I mean, all of these people on the team, it was a division one, one of the best programs in the country at the university of Virginia to this day, one of the best programs in this country. I didn't expect to be the best person. And I, and I looked around at everyone around me and assumed that they had more experience and knew more than me. And so that allowed me to be very open to, I know nothing, they know everything. 
whatever they tell me, I'm a sponge. I'm going to, I'm going to listen and learn and do. And that's what I'm here to do. You know, there wasn't any like, oh, are you sure about that? No, these people have clearly been doing this at a high level for a long time. I'm going to do that. And when it came to fitness, you know, I sat down next to the person that I figured was a little bit faster than me and knew a little more than me and did what they did until I got faster than them. And then I picked the next person that was a little bit faster than me and a little bit better than me and did what they did. And I remember one of the first times, so I was technically on what was called the novice team when I first started. And that just means people that are new to the sport, you know, not necessarily or, or new to college rowing one or one or the other. So there were people that were either freshmen, sophomore or juniors. I was a junior spring semester junior at that point in time. But we did a, a long race <laughs> where it was a long erg plus a mile plus run, then every stair in the stadium plus a swim, this whole very long event. And it was mixed with the varsity team. And I remember seeing these two varsity girls that I thought were very fast and I chased them down the whole time. And I was, you know, all proud of myself that <laughs> I actually beat them. <laughs> and so that was really where I was, was being open minded and just chasing, which I think was something that probably was imprinted upon me by having an older brother, you know, mm-hmm. growing up with a bunch of boys and trying to keep up with whoever was the next person in, in front of me. It dragged me forward. And at the same time, I pushed them. That's excellent. And I can only imagine, you know, how hard some of those days were, how challenging it was to keep up and to continue staying committed despite all the bad days and the setbacks. So I've heard you use the term naive optimism. Can you unpack that? You know, you're the first person that has asked me about that. And it really is a phrase that has come up time and time again in my life where, you know, it's one thing to be an optimist. It's quite another to be an an optimist that is just like, okay, that happened. That's the naive part of it. Okay, that happened. We're still, you know, that this is still possible you know, and be kind of being willing to shrug it off. Because at that point, particularly being young, the naive portion of it is kind of that we had been knocked down, but we still had the ability to somehow turn it around and say, okay, let's learn from that and keep going. You know, and some of the chapters in the book, learn and move forward, you know, that there are so many small things that just came up throughout my career, where no matter how many times we did get knocked down, we were still able to figure it out somehow. And a lot of that really did stem from our coach, you know, and the other athletes, the other women around me on my rowing team, when I first got into to the sport in college, they were the same way. And either, I don't know if they brought that in because they were there before me. I didn't at the time know their backgrounds. Now I've come to find out that they also had older siblings. So maybe that was a piece of it too. Who knows, you know, <laughs> but this combination of people that were all willing to do that, you know, and, and that was definitely something that was evident throughout my career with the national team. Because once I got there, I was novice all over again. Yeah, I was not the tallest, not the strongest, not the most experienced. And no matter how many times I got knocked down, it was like, this sport is allowing me to explore being better. And it had righted my ship all those years before, well, those couple of years before, I guess, that I wasn't going to give up on it, you know, very, I wasn't going to give up on it, period. <laughs> I omit the easily. I just, you know, period. I wasn't going to give up on it because if I did, that meant I was giving up on myself, mm-hmm. you know? 
you mentioned the national team mm -hmm. and I shared with you prior to recording that I have a running background. And one of the stories that I appreciated the most was a training run that you had to take with your teammates up this hill that was supposed to be on the trail, but you didn't exactly follow the trail. And speaking <laughs> of naive optimism, hearing <laughs> that story quickly. <laughs> I, you know, I love that story um, because it was one of my first. It was my first year on the team, and it was the first time I went up this hill. And it was not the first time we got lost. I'm telling you, that was just one example. <laughs> I give two specific examples, but in, I mean, in real life, that happened quite often. Where we went on this trail run, and it was meant to be that there was this beautiful view at the top of the Pacific Ocean. We were in Southern California training at the Olympic Training Center that was once down there. And this group of novice, you know, we were novices at that point. We had no national team experience, you know, really to speak of at that point. And our coach gave us a loose series of directions that to him were very specific. And here we were, we set off on this run and yeah, we found this path. Well, lo and behold, when you're in the desert in California, there are many paths that randomly happen. People are walking out there all the time. So what happened was we got to a point and all of a sudden we were like, well, now where does the path go? We couldn't find it. Ultimately get lost. And instead of continuing on our way out into the middle of nowhere, we were like, you know what? There's the top. Let's just figure that out. Took a turn off the trail and just trudged straight up the side of this hill to the point where I'm like clutching the grass, you know, to, to make sure I don't tumble backward. And my heart rate, once it started to spike at a running pace and here I was like crawling all on, all on all fours. It's like, yeah, that's effort. I'm not even going to look now. I just, <laughs> but it was one of those moments where you're with your friends and you cannot help but laugh. You're like, look at this predicament, you know, but we were that intent on this view at the top, we were not about to turn around and be like, well, that was a bust. No, even, and the thing is by the end of it, it was, it was getting dark and our assistant coach started to worry about us. That's how long it took us to get up there. <laughs> what I think is buried in that experience. And I love the fact that you were laughing so much through it, by the way, is the fact that you were all <laughs> so committed and not just to that summit, but then to your team. And you even mentioned like comparing yourselves to your peers who maybe weren't trying to strive for the same goal. What were people your age doing on a Friday or Saturday night compared to the, you and the rest of your teammates? Yeah. So that brings me to my next question, which is what role did your teammates play in your development? Yeah. Apart from me being that sponge from day one, you know, I mean, that was what it really continued to be. And I love that you bring up that you, that you got, that we were laughing the whole time, you know, and that's really a piece of what I think set that group of us apart and allowed us to be as successful as we were over the long haul, because we were able to find like the humor in this, these situations that a lot of people would have been like grumbling about, you know, right. and, and that's a choice, you know, and, and, um, there are ways that can help you be, make that choice more often, more, more often, you know, the better that you take care of yourself, the more you sleep, the more that you eat well, you exercise all those self-care things that allow you to be physically fit, allow you to be more mentally tough too, you know, their mood elevators, we know that people are going to be more truthful and more, you know, more creative and all of these things when we take really good care of ourselves. But 
finding those humorous undertones, you know, and I had a few teammates that were just funny people. They still are. And when I talk about teams, you know, we, I have had a lot of conversations about what makes groups of people successful. And in my experience through everything that I've seen, the X factors really are those people that can find humor and levity because these situations that you get, that you put yourself in can be pretty demoralizing and pretty, you know, they can just knock you down, you know? And so you have to find ways to decompress from that. And that run alone was a great example of it because we were able to like take something that would otherwise potentially be mind numbing or like I said, demoralizing and really just fold it into our lives in a very positive way. For me, that sounds very motivating. And I actually have a friend who is training for the upcoming Tahoe 200 mile race. Mm -hmm. And her mantra is running with an attitude of gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, you know, it's, you know, savor this moment. There were a lot of times uh, savoring and gratitude have come up in the last, I don't know how many years, but, um, they're very common. And at first I was kind of like, well, what does that mean? You know, I, I am grateful for a lot of things, you know, and to have to be reminded of that seemed, was a foreign concept to me because there was a moment I remember walking into the boathouse one morning and I was the only one there at this point. And as I'm walking through the parking lot, it's still pretty dark. The sun had just started to break where the sky starts to light up to this like purplish pinkish color. And I remember just stopping and staring at the sky and being like, wow, this is what I get to do today. You know, here I had gotten up very early to get there 45 minutes before everyone else to do extra warm up before our team warm up so that I could stay healthy. And I'm like, just so grateful because of doing that, I got to see this gorgeous sunrise, you know, and, and I knew that there was a finite amount of time in my life that I could do that actual thing. So there were a lot of moments where, I felt that where I started noticing vivid colors and smaller moments and a teammate of mine who is actually currently still training after she read my book, she said, thank you for reminding me of this opportunity, like, like that we get to do this, you know, and, and sometimes we forget that being able to train and being able to do whatever it is that we're doing, that we should be grateful to be able to do those things. And I thought that was pretty neat coming from someone who's training for her fourth Olympics. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> We've unpacked so far the fact that you started in the sport later in life. You're hustling as much as you can to keep up with your teammates. Mm -hmm. So, and I have to admit, like one thing that's clear to me is that you do have an intuitive knack to connect with people despite your insecurities and when given an opportunity to support them, you really give your all. So what do you think were some of the biggest contributions you made to your NCAA division one world championship and Olympic teams? I, something, something that I didn't realize I did until almost a decade, right? Like it was, uh, we in the 2017, the world championships, we're in Sarasota, Florida. I live in Florida. We, there was a big United States uh, rowing team reunion. And a group of us were met before we went to one of the events just to have hors d'oeuvres and hang out and catch up, you know. And I went and um, took a shower and I came back out. And then when I walk out, everybody's 
just kind of looking at me. And I was like, that's weird. <laughs> and what happened was they'd had a conversation when I was showering and they said, you know, Shoop, we wouldn't all be here if it weren't for you because we were all friends, but I was the connector among us. And that was something that I didn't realize that I did and that I was, and that they didn't even realize until that moment when they were standing there talking about it because they had kind of, you know, maintained loose contact over the years, but not in the same way that each of them had individually with me. And I think that that is, I mean, that's a huge piece of teams is how do they work together? And that's where, you know, one of my Virginia teammates actually moved to Jersey just before I did. And I think that there are people on teams that we forget that play roles that aren't measurable, that are those X factors to go back to what I mentioned before that allow teams to excel past whatever the numbers and data say. Yes, you're this tall. Yes, you're this fast. But can't you get more out of one another if you really do it together and work together? You can, we all have gaps and we all have, we all are the best at things. So all those attributes combine to help us fill our gaps and we help someone else fill gaps so that we can each become really, really better, like role models for one another imperceptibly sometimes, you yeah. know, like these, these positive habits that we all have that we can learn from. Um, but that I really think is, is what it is that I, I think is super cool. I would have never noticed it. You know, again, you take for granted the things that, you know, until someone tells you, Oh, not everybody does that or knows that. I definitely want to dive into your coaching philosophies in a second, but before I do, so when I had Erin on the podcast, she was the first Olympian that we've had on the show. And she seemed surprised by that. And I promised her, you're the first, but you won't be the last. Yeah. So now that I have you here today, I have to ask you, can you describe the Olympic experience and what it was like to win gold? Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many things we could talk for nine hours. <laughs> we could talk for the rest of our lives about it, but <laughs> I think something that is incredibly unique and there's so much about the Olympics, you know, even if you, everybody knows the Olympics, we, it's the pinnacle of athletic achievement, whether you're an athlete or not, you know, it's, it is people at the top of their game, period, you know, something like, and I, I did the math on this, you know, Two to 3% of the people that make it to the games might medal. So that puts you in this tiny little many zeros, five zeros after the decimal point percentage might ever win, you know, the games. But rowing specifically is one of the few sports in our specific games in 2008. Only three sports had the award ceremony um, uniform climate waved because we literally got our medal within a matter of minutes of crossing the finish line. Most sports, if right. you win in the morning, you win in the afternoon, or if you win at night, you get it the next day, you know, you, or you get your medal in the afternoon or evening. And then if you win at night, you get it the next day. So here we were still sweating, still shaking, still just totally raw rowing over to the dock to get our medals. And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, all this stuff is happening. And you're like, oh, oh, that's for me right now you know, and everything is happy and you're excited and you're just, so, I'm staring at my teammates and so excited for them. And then this woman is standing in front of me to hand me this medal and it just knocked me down, you know, because it was a physically heavy object. And all of a sudden it makes you realize the gravity of what you've just done. And it's kind of this, like, you know, the end, not an end point, but kind of the the cherry on the top of this huge adventure that you've just had with your, you know, with your team and your teammates. 
and every one of your coaches and all the people along the way. And I would say what the Olympics does, it is, and I write this in the journal entry at the very end of the book is that it, it takes all of the, everything you thought that you could feel and just amplifies it. So your ability to do, your ability to think, your ability to feel things, your emotions are heightened. And it also gives you this ability to believe in things. It allows you to really believe in the impossible when you do something like that, because you're like, wow, if I can, if that can happen, anything can happen, (laughs) you know, and, and maybe it's unfair to tell other people like, no, anything really is possible because of what I've done. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, it's a pretty unbelievable experience and story to go from yeah. you know, overweight and getting passed by a speedwalker to winning the Olympic Games. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And that's why it's so <laughs> impressive and inspiring and I think important to share because pare that down, you know. Like you mentioned, the math just isn't there. Not everybody is going to be a gold medal Olympian, but if you set a goal and you achieve it, you can be rewarded. Yeah. I've been asked, actually most recently been asked, well, what if you hadn't won, you know? And it's like, well, nothing about anything that led up to that moment would have been different, you know? And maybe I would feel, I can't tell you what I would feel because that is not what occurred. Um, But every single day that went into that, I still would have learned all of those lessons, you know, and I still would have come away with the lifelong friends that I do have still to this day, you know, and, and having, you know, overcome all the things along the way, I I actually um, got to do the commentary for US Olympic trials, which were last week. And, and one of the things that I commented on is something that I do believe in wholeheartedly is like the race is the easy part, you made all the hard decisions every day before the race, you know, I, I even say in the book that, um, you know, our coach kind of joked about, it was like, you're, you're going to be ready to be tired for the next four years, you know? So when you go into the games, you are rested for that race. You are tired for four years and one night you feel really great, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, but it was like, you know, to go back to what potentially would have happened if not everybody makes it to the games, you still learn those lessons and we all have our Olympic moment whether that's the, the Olympic games or any big moment in life, you know, whatever it takes to get there. Yeah. Before we talk about your post Olympic endeavors, this is a perfect segue into my next question. So throughout your life, it seems like coaches have seen potential in you before you've seen it in yourself looking back now. And with years of coaching experience, what were practices or qualities you think they were picking up on? (laughs) <laughs> height, first of all, <laughs> you know, height, height yeah. helps. I mean, and not just height in rowing specifically lankiness. So that awkward late bloomer rowing is the sport for you. You know, there are so many sports out there and they all run the gamut of speed to accuracy. You know, a lot of people don't even think of windsurfing, archery, shoot, like there's so many sports and we all can really be kind of designed mentally, physically, whatever your attributes are to to a particular sport. I think that personability, personable, personability, is that, is that the word I'm looking for? Personability? Being, being personal, being, a, <laughs> yeah, being approachable, you know, but having an underarching positive nature, you know, having that positivity was something my mom would say that I popped out of the womb with a smile on my face. 
I, I think that that kind of ability to to bounce back from small things that kind of knock you down was something they picked up on. That consistency element was something that came up many times in my life. Literally, the word consistent was said about me for a very long time, which early on, sometimes I was like, does that mean that I'm here, but never here, you know, meaning like I'm, I'm good to this point, but not, you know, off the charts. But at the end of the day, you also want to make sure that the person is going to perform to at least a minimum (laughs) on race day, you know, apart from that, I mean, I think that those were kind of the biggest things was this person, my physical size, and then my personality and being able to get along with other people were those things because really the sports that I did excel in were the team sports mm-hmm. and the ones that I that I you know gravitated toward were the team sports mm-hmm. excellent so if we fast forward on the timeline you mentioned you now live in Florida mm-hmm. and you are super passionate about leading people on a path of seizing their full potential by removing self-imposed doubts or limitations makes sense given all of your experience. So can you explain your coaching philosophy or philosophies? Yeah. Uh, You know, a couple of things. The first thing I do with every team that I work with, and this was a fun experiment with the first junior program that I coached, which was basically I've, I've worked with middle school, all the every group from middle school, all the way up to, you know, your 80 year old master's rower, you know, apart from, you know, college included elite included Olympic and Paralympic included, you know, and, but it always starts with, what do you want to get out of this? Why does this matter to you? Why are you here? I started that with, you know, and you can ask an eighth grader, you can ask a sixth grader that, whatever it is, you know, and for basically everyone out there, and I read this recently, so this is not mine, but I loved it. I thought it was so great. It was, why do people play sports? Fun, friends, and fitness, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and and it really is even at the Olympic level, it is that simple. And because the harder it gets, the harder it gets, you have to love it more and more. Otherwise, you're going to be like, wow, there are so many other things I could be doing right now. You know, and, and to go back to that moment when you're saying comparing to our peers that are, are what are they doing? You know, and that was a story about sitting on the stationary bike and having 100 minutes to pedal on a Friday night, and it's pitch black dark. What is everybody else in the world doing and having that realization of there, there is nowhere else I would rather be, you know, this is literally it. And so talking about that with the people that I, that I do get to work with, because that allows them to go for however far they want to take it, it's going to be challenging. And that allows, that helps them manage those challenges when it's meaningful. And I bring this up a lot in the book is when it matters to you, when it's connected to you, when it's deeply meaningful to you, that helps you be uh, you're more willing to put up with the getting knocked down. So that's really where it all, that's the the foundation of my coaching philosophy, you know? I love that. It's so transferable too, you know, for every endeavor and not just sports. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I very intentionally, I wrote the first 40,223 words in the first draft where that's how long it was, right? <clears throat> it was the first draft. Yes. <laughs> this is why. <laughs> your attention to detail is not lost on me (laughs) it took me about three weeks to do that and then I had a really fantastic editor who instead of editing he asked me questions and taught me how to write better like he basically asked me a lot of questions he was like this is very interesting tell me more and I hear I had omitted details thinking people would find it boring and then it 
you know, the book ended up being 112,000 words long. I've had people tell me they read it in a single day. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's very readable. I couldn't put it down. So after writing the first 40,223 words, I spent the entire pandemic editing it. So that was really, everything started shutting down. A lot of my coaching started shutting down. All the things that I had planned, you know, doing commentary for all of us rowing's races, all of that stuff. And so here I was editing for like six hours a day. This is Ocean Rescue got shut down, you know, so I got furloughed for that. So here I am working on this book. So I was reflecting on this is how we excelled and this is how we were unique. That specific pod of people were unique compared to all of our counterparts. I have teammates that went to the games prior to and after and said that group was unique. That experience was unique. So I believe them. (laughs) And I couldn't help but reflect on how this story I also felt that it was important, yes, to talk about the power of positive coaching and to talk about teamwork, but that's also in reflection of people in general, right? Like, can't we be a little more hopeful, a little more positive? And even if we aren't all the same and don't all feel the same way, we're all pointing towards something and we're all going through this emotional struggle. Let's respect that everybody is going through an emotional struggle, that meaning life, meaning that that is the grand scheme of things of everyone's individual lives and figure out a way to work together to make it make help everyone be better. I was going to say, I feel like that is very much part of the leadership under fire mission. And mm-hmm. I shared this before on the podcast in terms of my experience working in big organizations, like organizations are made up of individuals mm-hmm. and humanizing the narrative, really understanding who individuals are, how they work, why mm-hmm. we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. It's a very powerful formula. Yeah. We're talking about leadership under fire. One thing I will throw out there was when I, um, I knew I wanted to do ocean rescue before I even discovered rowing. And people are, people are always like, why do you want to do that? I'm like, well, I get to be outside. It's purposeful athleticism. You know, being I didn't realize because my entire Olympic career, I was told I was the smaller person. I was told I was constantly told I needed to be stronger. And here I stepped out of Olympic athleticism into the rest of the world. And all of a sudden I was bigger than everybody again. (laughs) And that's a useful gift when it comes to literally helping other people. I say that, you know, um, today's athletes are yesterday's warriors, you know, and like we would have protected people back in the day had it been another century or eon ago. And here is an opportunity to help people in a very different way. It's, it's amazing. I actually, before I started doing ocean rescue, I worked at Lululemon for a short period of time to basically pass the time until that happened, you know, and And part of their philosophy is that they give you a whole list of business books to read. And they're like, this one you must read. The rest of them are are for you. We highly recommend these things. And I started reading these books and it just became so apparent. I was like, oh, this is how sports is a metaphor because it's all about teams and people, you know, whether it's an actual sport, everything is all about communication and how these groups of people work together. And sport is just a very tangible example of that. You know, it's the same in and out. (laughs) There's one other component I want to make mention of. But first, you peppered in there uh, that you're a member of the Ocean Rescue uh, in Florida. You're EMT. And you also have a master's degree in exercise, physiology and nutrition. So 
the other component that I want to tease out is being committed to being a lifelong learner. I wanted to ask you, how do you think people can become better students? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's all about, I'm just curious, you know, and, and I love, I used to hate reading. I went to class, you know, and really my sports really kept me organized from that standpoint. Like I went to class because if I didn't go to class, I couldn't go play, <laughs> you know, that was me. But, um, I have become even more hungry for knowledge as I've aged, which has become very apparent to me through my Olympic career because it was allowing me to be better. I could understand things better, which would help me, you know, perform better from an athletic standpoint, which ultimately the degree in exercise physiology was like, I want to help other people be better. You know, how can I be even better at uh, coaching and helping them along? Like, yes, I could just teach them everything that I, I did during, you know, that happened in my own path. Well, we're all different. We all need slightly different things. How can I use that information and, you know, use all that experience and this and bring it all together. And so I, for, for me, that is just ultimately about curiosity and wanting to be the best that I can be at something. I, I want to leave no stone unturned and not have a, what if I knew this? Or what if I had done that? Well, go figure that out. You know, like go find a way to fill that gap the next time out. You know, for, from a coaching standpoint, they usually go on cycles in terms of races and those sorts of things. And then it really is that, um, every race that you ever race, you might have 20 things that you could have done better Well, you pick one and you fix that or you work on that thing. And we tie being a lifelong learner to well-being. And I think that it really is that because it allows you to continuously be a, a curious human being that doesn't have an end, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's the beauty of lifelong learning is there's so much out there. You could never learn it all in your one lifetime, you know? And, and maybe it is about just having something to do. I don't know. <laughs> But isn't that kind of a, a a beautiful thing about being human is that you always have some way to be better. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine shared a quote with me recently. Unfortunately, I don't know who to attribute it to, mm-hmm. but the quote is, blessed are the curious for they shall have adventures. Ah, I love that. I've never heard that before. Mm-hmm. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> You're like that, that one works. I love it. (laughs) It fits. It fits. (laughs) Yeah. Again, I really enjoyed reading your book. I've been gushing about it this whole interview. I understand you're known for being a storyteller. So what did you enjoy about the writing process? Did Aaron tip you off to that? (laughs) (laughs) Everything, you know, for many years, especially working, working with coach teams of coaches, you know, I'm, I'm always like, okay, don't dominate the conversation. Be mindful of this. You know, we only have so much time here, but then, and that's why the first draft of my book was short was because I had been working on not dominating the conversation. So let's pare this down. And all of a sudden this man comes along and opens Pandora's box said, give me more details. I said, I have them, (laughs) you know, and writing allowed me to express all the details that you can't have in one conversation but it was also something I got to learn. The number of times that I, my own book inspired me to write the book. When things got really hard, I would think about something that I had already gone through, through my rowing experience, because writing a book is really hard. You know, you're sitting alone by yourself for a very long time. Days would go by when I wouldn't leave my apartment because part of it was during the pandemic. And, um, but it was just, it was 
fun to go back and really understand because it started as an investigation of how did I turn out this way? How did I get to turn out this way? And how could I use some of that to help other people? You know, and that's really where it started, this version of the book. And so going back and investigating, I had so many aha moments of conversations and questions that people ask me. I now have all of this material that I've put a ton of thought into to answer those questions with very obvious examples of, yep, that's that's exactly what we did, you know. And, you know, the farther that you move away from an experience, I'm very lucky in that maybe it's a curiosity Maybe it's my detailed storytelling nature, but even when I kept my training logs, which were like my resting heart rate in the morning, my heart rates during training sessions, my splits, my speeds, whatever we did, I would write down like it was raining today or it was one of those days today. I I even wrote in my training log, I had one of those days today, I even stepped in a puddle on the way to the car, you know, and so to be able to go back and look at that and use that as my kind of fact checking to write the book, it also helped me repiece together a series of events and things like that to go, nope, that really is how that happened. You know, and it was fun in so many ways. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. And I think it translates because it's such an easy read and it's so, so enjoyable and so insightful. The complete title of the book is Better Great Than Never. Believing it's possible is where champions begin. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what do you want people to take away from your story? It's that the idea of never selling yourself short, you know? I mean, sometimes we look at a mountain and go, man, that's high. I could never get up there. And when I originally, I, the way I wanted to start the book is, is the way that I respond whenever people say never to me is I say, and that's exactly why. It's not because of you. It's because of the way that you're approaching that. The fact, if you ever say I could never do that, that's the reason. So all you have to do is go, that's really far. I could get up there. (laughs) You know, that's all that matters is that's where it starts is, you know what? Maybe I could do that. And then if you really want that to happen, you're willing to put more. When I did my EMT, we had a joke where it was energy, money, and time. Those are the resources that go into it. Right. And the more that you want something, the more resources you're willing to pour, you're willing to pour into that, which makes it more likely to happen. And so as soon as you go, as soon as you believe that it's possible, then you're willing to step forward one step at a time. And that's, that's, that's it, you know? That's awesome. (laughs) You know, there is another portion of the story. So I will eventually write book two whenever that happens. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. I, I didn't know that. So that's yeah. excellent. Good thing you're teasing it now. <laughs> it also, it holds me accountable to writing it too. So <laughs> yes, it does. And actually we had a chief Michelle Fitzsimmons of the FDNY on our podcast hmm. last year. And that was something she said, when you speak it into existence, you have to follow through. Yep. And that, you know, to, to, again, with the subtitle of the book, you know what, that's possible. Why not? Let's do it. You know, and that you speak it into existence and it, 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 that's the first step. That's really where you start. That's awesome. Lindsay, we're recording this in early March, 2021. My final question is being that it's women's history month. I have to ask you which women leaders have offered you inspiration and how so? that was another really fun piece of writing the book was to realize how many strong female role models I had in my life. 
I didn't realize just how many female coaches I had and how many fantastic female teachers that I had that just demonstrated joy in what they did, you know, and, and they were role models. I, some of my earliest coaches that I had were female and some of them happened to be tall and had long curly brown hair like me. And I thought, wow, like maybe I could grow up and be cool and happy, you know, and, and those were really great people to have in my life at a young age, you know, and, and they're throughout the story. One in particular that I would like to throw a shout out to is actually still the assistant, the female assistant coach of the U S women's national team, Laurel Corholz. I think that she is someone that is so understated and so underrated. And I wrote a very small thing about her in the book that like, if you meet her, you realize how unassuming true excellence is that she was our mother hen that really would drop those little nuggets of just like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> you know, cause here you are training for the Olympic games. You still need to hear it's going to, it's, that was great. <laughs> you know? And, uh, there was a, there was a moment in the book where she literally said to me, I had no idea how I did. We obviously performed, but again, I never took anything for granted. And she just took it upon herself to say, Lindsay, that was excellent, which was so meaningful, you know? And, and that, yeah. Uh, without her, I don't know that we would have, or at least I don't know that I would have excelled in the way that I did. So there are many, but I'll, I'll leave it at, at her for sure. I love that. I think being happy is one way of being wise. So, yeah, <laughs> I love that too. That's another one that I haven't heard. <laughs> Two mystery quotes in one day. <laughs> I'm sorry that we're running out of time. I so enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you for, you know, being so generous with your knowledge and your experience. And uh, I'm happy we were able to do this. I am too. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.